This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I normally don't just discuss one serial killer. I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. I have once again let Igor out of the dungeon and have allowed her to tell you some tales of unexplained disappearances. Take it away, Igor. Good evening, lab rat. Queen V has once again allowed me to come out and sit with you and tell you some tales of macabre and terror. Today I have chosen a book that I recently read and it really creeped me out, so I thought I would share that with you. It's called Tales of Mystery Unexplained, book two by Steph Young. And I've selected four creepy tales to go over with you. Let me tell you, you may want to actually get a pen and paper and write down your questions because I know if they weren't listed in the book already, I would have had to, but I also had some of my mind additionally that I kind of had to write down, especially once I knew I was going to be doing this with you. Have a seat, pull up some alcohol because you're going to need it, but not too much because you need to try to keep up with all this. So the first one I'm going to do is called The Missing Body Parts. And it starts in 2013. 24-year-old Ryan Singleton was found dead in Death Valley. Sands his internal organs. Sands means without. I learned that from Shakespeare class. You're welcome. Death Valley is in eastern California in the northern Mojave Desert. And is one of the hottest places on earth along with deserts in the Middle East and Sahara. I had to look that up because I'm not a geographical girl. Ryan leaves Atlanta to launch his career in acting modeling. He ended up, now it doesn't give a time frame of when this happened, from the time he went off with his friends to when he actually did this, but he was a New York Fashion Week runway model in an unknown year. He ended up staying in New York City and marrying a celebrity fashion stylist named Kite Brewster, K-Y-H-T-E, of course. And Kite Brewster works with the likes of Beyonce and even Lady Gaga was mentioned. He was twice Ryan's age, and this obviously may have contributed to their breakup four months later. Now, I say breakup, they were still legally married, but they were separated. By the time of his disappearance, he had moved back to Atlanta and in with his mom. Ryan then decided to move to Hollywood, and he packed up, like I said, with his friends, and they actually filmed the journey for a docuseries. And I'll mention that here soon, that it actually is on the Bounce channel. He left Hollywood after a few years, I believe, and he went to L.A., packed up along with some of his friends, filmed the journey for a docuseries. Then he left L.A., moved back to New York, and he got pitched. His own mom, Iris Flowers, which sounds like a folk singer, was finding out about her son's life via social media and was quoted as saying, I don't have a clue what's going on. So imagine that as being a parent learning about life through Instagram or social media. That would be very hard. T.D. Faison, one of his partners on the documentary, said, we were going to become the next biggest film producers out there just like HBO's Entourage. It just didn't play out like that. And matter of fact, I read somewhere that they did call themselves Black Entourage. The friend's dream was ended by the mysterious disappearance of Ryan. There was an ominous conversation that Iris said she had with her son after he moved back. And he told her, something bad is going to happen to me, isn't it? She said, Brian, what are you talking about? 
And she said, do you owe someone money? And he said, no. He told her, I've done a lot of things to hurt a lot of people. Iris said she never found out exactly what Brian was talking about. I don't know if he felt some kind of way because he left the production team, married Kite, and it didn't work out with Kite, and now he's home. He knew he hurt me by disappearing and not communicating with me. Anybody outside of that, I couldn't figure out who it could be. Nothing I read, and I did a little bit of scouting, obviously, outside of the book, really explained why. He just kind of disappeared. It seemed like they were close. Two days after they had this conversation, he went back to L.A., and that was the last time that she would see her son alive. After he disappeared, Brian's mother said she got a call from his husband, who she said told her that Ryan had called him and seemed like he had been drinking. She said Kite told her that Ryan's life could be in danger. Not much more explanation of that, just a feeling he must have had, but 74 days later, his body was found in the desert. Because the book, although really great and creepy factor, it's not good at laying out a timeline. Like when you read it initially, you get enthralled in it and it's a great read and you're freaked out, but it's not good when you're going back and kind of looking at timelines. So I went online to WTSP Miami, Miami, to get a better idea for myself of what all this happened. June 2010, Ryan leaves home in Georgia for New York to become a model. He later heads to Los Angeles to pursue film production. December 2012, he leaves the production crew in LA, returns to New York, and marries Kite Brewster, the celebrity style. April 2013 to July 2013, he returns to Atlanta, lives with his mom, separates from his husband. So we're kind of caught up to where we are right now. His last day, these are his movements. This is what they put together. San Bernardino's County Sheriff's Department Coroner Division on July 6th flew to LA to stay with a friend and left for Las Vegas the next day alone. According to the Sheriff's Department, they say they tracked it down and he flew to LA and then went alone. Now, again, didn't find a good reason. He told his mom something about he was trying out for a football team. Again, not sure where all that came from, but it's not really sure. It doesn't really get specific. That's why I'd love to watch this documentary. On July 8th of 13, he called his friend saying he was on his way back from Vegas and called the next day again saying he needed money to put into his account to get back home. So his friend did that. Ryan also ended up asking his mom to send him a hundred bucks via Western Union. And if you're old like me, maybe you remember Western Union having to need it when you're in college or whatnot, or a new murder lab assistant trying to make your way in the world. Iris, his mom, wired him money, the $100. Then the friend got a call at 3 p.m. asking the same day that this money was wired to him to see if he could pick him up three hours away from L.A. in a city called Baker, California. It turns out the police officer had seen him walking along I-15, and when asked what happened, Brian told the officer he was attacked by small animals and was trying to find his car. Evidently, his rental car broke down. It wasn't his car. Again, not a lot of detail in the book, but you can kind of surmise things, and I looked things up online to make it all clearer. The cops said that he didn't feel Ryan was drunk or high, and they looked for his rental car together, and the patrol car couldn't find it. The officer dropped Ryan off at a gas station rest area, where he then phoned his friend. Within the three hours between Ryan calling his friend, he just vanished, and then was found 74 days later. Going to when he was found. Almost three months later, 
what was left of Ryan's body was found by two men who had gone out in the desert surrounding the rest stop to hike. Because that's what I do. You know, where are you going to hike? Near a rest stop. You know, maybe we'll find a body. Who knows? It's my Tuesday. His body was found approximately two miles from the rest stop where the patrolman had dropped him off. Temperatures in Death Valley reach 120 degrees. Very little shelter. It's a barren, scorching landscape. And it's one of the most hostile places on earth. Why would Ryan leave the only shelter at the gas station inside the rest stop to walk almost two miles where his body was found? Who in their right mind would even consider doing such a thing? And yet... The patrolman certainly believed Ryan was in his right mind. The rental vehicle was found two miles from the gas station, begging the question, if he was dehydrated, could he have wandered off in this state? What would make Ryan leave the only shelter there was, knowing his friend was on his way? But, of course, it gets stranger. When Ryan's body was found 74 days later, his mother was horrified and could not understand what she was being told. Due to the circumstances around his disappearance, his case was sent to the Special Case Division. So we're going to summarize real quick where we are in the timeline. July 2013. Ryan tells his mom he's going to Vegas to try out for a football team. Like I said, I don't know. And his mom, Iris, said she later realized that wasn't the case. What was he doing? I don't know. July 9th, 2013. Ryan calls his mother in the morning asking her to send him the $100 to Nevada. July 9th, 2013, same day, mom receives the call from Kite, Ryan's estranged husband, and mother tells Kite that Ryan is on the West Coast. Kite tells his mother that Ryan called him and seemed to had drink, been drinking and tells Iris that Ryan's life could be in danger. Again, same day, July 9th, the mother speaks with Barstow County Detective who told her Ryan was seen walking down the highway at 2 p.m. by a California Highway Patrol person. Ryan tells deputies his car broke down. Deputies took Ryan to look for the car, couldn't locate it. Deputies took Ryan to the closest town, Baker, where they dropped him off at a convenience store. Deputies said Ryan made a purchase, walks out of the store, and vanishes. Now the next day, July 10th of 2013, Ryan's car is found in Barstow County, a few miles north where deputies and Ryan initially searched for the car. On the 11th, the case was assigned to another detective who informed Iris that her son was receiving multiple uh, money from multiple people. Of course he was, her and his friend. Don't know if it was other people that was never delved into. September 21st of 2013, Ryan's body is found by two joggers, hikers, with his organs missing about two miles from the convenience store where he was last seen. This is within the five-mile radi radius that authorities intensively searched. A lot of questions here, but we're going to have more when I get to the autopsy next. Not sure what he was doing there. Not sure his state of mind. When I was looking online to see about any updates or, you know, get this timeline and whatnot, I found something that said that the police actually never said that they had an officer that reported all this. They couldn't find any report. Strange. So the autopsy. There were no eyes, no heart, no lungs, and no kidney. His body, at this point, was mostly skeletal. The county coroner's office said there's no cause of death. The body was severely decomposed. Animals might have been involved. The case has been sent to the special case division because it deserves more attention than we can give it. 
which of course only fueled the uh, suspicion that it was not a natural death. Of course, I don't see how any of that could be natural, but outdoors, animals, hmm. Several bones appear to have been disarticulated from the body by animal activity. No internal organs of the chest, abdomen, or pelvis secondary to annual activity. And most of the ribs of the left chest have been removed by animal activity. They could find no indicators of anything happening at the scene. Didn't see a struggle, didn't see any signs of anything along those lines. His clothing was deteriorated, but not torn or ripped. There was possible trauma to the side of the head. Not sure what that means. They didn't say whether they thought it was a hammer, gun. They didn't say. Cause of death was undetermined due to advanced decomposition. Indications of hemorrhaging of the brain, Ryan's autopsy says. The, layer, the outer layer of the brain is stained dark red, suggesting some superficial hemorrhage. And the skull underneath the dura on the left side is pale, suggesting a possible hemorrhage on the left side. Also, a fracture line is noted on the lateral wall of the left temporal fossa. However, the pathologist also notes the fractural line begins or ends at one of the saw cuts, so it may be an autopsy artifact. So that could have been done during the autopsy, but I would think that they would know the difference. Something clean and something that's not as clean, I would, I would think they would know the difference. The inner aspect of the fractured bone was examined by the undersigned forensic anthropologist, but there was no evidence of decompositional material within the left temporal bone fracture line, suggesting it did not occur prior to the body decomposing. So, post-decomp? Hmm. Okay. Here again, questions, theories. Many thought that it was strange that at such a busy bus stop, no one reported seeing him. His mom says his ex-husband said, I believe that he was taken from there and later put back there. I just don't think he passed out there and was there for two and a half months. His mom said police told her that there was video surveillance of her son being in the store at the gas station. His mother has said in TV interviews, my son was six foot five and he was chocolate and he was a lifeguard before he left Georgia to go to California for the weekend so I don't understand why you're telling me that no one saw my child. Nothing? And Cheryl McCollum, the founder of and director of the Cold Case Investigation Research Institute in Atlanta, that's a mouthful, stated, either his clothes were ripped or they weren't. We have a lot of questions. I think that it may have been some kind of illicit team or organization in the city. And to me, it felt completely like Ryan walked out of that store, somebody took him and hit him in the head, put him in the back of a truck against his will, and he was still in that city. That was the first thing I felt when the detective called me and said Ryan was a missing person. So was it a serial killer? Was he targeted for being gay, i.e. a hate crime? Did Ryan give a ride to somebody and they killed him? Or, what we're going to probe that's really fascinating... Organ trafficking, that's the most prevalent thing that I saw in the book and out there on the net. What mama say? I just cannot believe some animal came to my son's body and opened it up very precisely, removed just the eyes, heart, lungs, liver, and kidneys, and his whole body was remarkably intact when he was found. For my son to be found with his shoes, socks, shorts, fully dressed, and remarkably intact, and you want me to believe animals? She goes on to say, 
that when his rental car was searched, there were no fingerprints. They had been white, clean. And if his organs were removed by animals, explain it to her. Either those bones have got gnaw marks from the animal or they don't. His mother said she phoned to ask, was his body dismembered? Were parts of his body strewn all over near where he was found? No, the voice on the other end of the phone said. Not a single limb had been severed, like one would expect from a wild animal attack. Not a leg, not an arm, not a hand. Nothing was ripped from his body, said his mother. This explanation of coyotes apparently being discriminate on what they took and what they did not take was too far-fetched to accept. His mother cannot help but wonder if his organs were taken from his body to be sold. He was a healthy, fit young man, the perfect specimen. How long was he out in the desert? He was missing for 74 days before I got that call. For me, it feels like murder. It feels like someone else took my son and killed him and took his organs. For his body not to be strewn about if animals did this just does not add up. The coroner's report stated no tattoos were found on Ryan, but he had tattoos. His mom says, when I read the report, it said tattoos, none were found. And I'm like, wait a minute, my son had had tattoos. So now you're telling me that animals came, removed his organs. Were these same animals smart enough to go and remove the tattoos as well? How do you explain that? Because to me, it's like somebody removed his tattoos so he couldn't be identified. Those are identifiable marks. I have a lot of questions. She pointed out no tattoos, which they didn't mention anywhere else that I looked. So what happened to Ryan Singleton? I had mentioned earlier about the Bounce Network airing a film about his docuseries from his friends and him on their road trip. That's called Dying to be Famous, The Ryan Singleton Mystery. Hopefully, we'll be able to check that out, but to actually see him would be so eerie and probably very difficult to watch for me. I thought we'd go ahead and change tacks for a second. I think it was really appropriate to do a lot of serial killer jokes, given the material we got going on. So the serial killer takes the victim into the forest, and it's dark outside, right? So the victim says, I'm scared. And the killer says, you're scared. I gotta walk out here alone. So with that in mind, we can switch back to talk about another story. The case of Paula Picard. And this is from France in April of 22. Gauss al Ledoux in the Brest district. <laughs> Not Mamory Brest, but B-R-E-S-T. Yes, it's obvious I don't speak French, never took no French talk. I'm going to do my best with this. In that Brest <laughs> district, I'm just going to say it's in the middle in France. So this two-year-old goes missing from her family's farm, but a girl resembling her is located in another town in an orphanage over 200 miles away a month later. So they can't find her. They look. Lots of people involved. The parents say it's their daughter when they go to pick her up, but she doesn't appear to know them and refuses to speak. Well, they assume it's due to the trauma of her being missing. They didn't know what she had gone through. She had been found wandering the shops in town, and then the orphanage took her in. So this little girl from the orphanage was taken back to be reunited with her eight other siblings. Wowza. It was not only said that the family acknowledged her as Pauline, but neighbors also appeared to know her as well. 
seems good, right? Never. 527 of 22, the Paul Mall Gazette, which I know I have a subscription to, ran a story saying, a mystery of a lost, a found, and a dead girl. What? A farmer was crossing a field and found the mutilated body of a small girl, naked and decapitated, with her face partially devoured by foxes. Ew. Her clothing was found near her carefully folded. So someone took the time to fold her clothes. It's said that the Picard parents followed the police to the body and admitted the clothes were the ones Pauline was wearing when she had vanished. Three days later, there was another report implying the body must have been placed there after all the searches, moved from probably location of death to this other location where they had already searched. If this was Pauline, why'd she not been found in the previous searches, obviously? Or was it another child? Dun, dun, dun. The Picards had already claimed to have their daughter back, but they naturally had some second thoughts about that at this point, especially after seeing the clothing and putting together a little girl, hadn't talked, didn't seem to really know them. Police now had to not only find out who the dead child was, but also find the murderer and discover who the child was staying with the Picards. Plot twist. The head found near the body was a skull of a grown man. Grown-ass man. So, let's review. We have a girl from an orphanage, a dead toddler's body, a man's head, all that have to be identified. Now, are either of these Pauline? And where's the poor kid's head? Where's the body of the dude? Now, the post-mortem on the body says she died of hunger, so her head must have been cut off after. Another paper reported it was an accident, but uh, when your head's removed and the clothes are folded, that kind of leads to a crime in my book. Was it the killer's head that they found of the grown dude? If so, who placed it there, and where was the little one's head? Now, two strangers were have been reported to have been seen around the farm prior to the disappearance, but these men were never located, and it was also discussed how a Mr. Caramon, who had worked as a farmhand for the Picards, had breakfast with the family the day that Pauline disappeared. As the investigation progressed, further gruesome details emerged. The hands and feet were missing. And again, you'd think they'd notice that at the beginning, but maybe the cops were holding back some information. This Mr. Caramon was then questioned, but he ended up not being in the area at the time of the disappearance. Then the focus was on a Mr. E. St. Martin, or Eve Martin, a neighbor, and it was rumored because he behaved oddly when Pauline, in quotation marks, was brought back home, i.e. he became hysterical, burst into laughter, and crazily stated, May God forgive me. Hmm. Morbidology reports, he said, God is fair, I am guilty, and that he had a traumatic brain injury prior to this statement. So it may not be attributed to his guilt, but to the head injury. He was then admitted to a mental hospital the next day and was apparently ruled out as a suspect. The Picards ended up giving the little girl back to the orphanage where morbidology says she died a few years later in the measles epidemic but they did bury her under the name Pauline Picard and were buried beside her. So that made, made me feel good if that actually happened. 
again, another head scratcher. What the fuck? Because it's so old, I didn't see any update, but I did kind of search because that's what I like to do to see if maybe someone with now the DNA technology, they went back. But there's so many other cases that are more recent that they have more DNA for. I mean, I don't know how much they kept at that point. That is number two. This next one is a head scratcher faux show uber times. This is the baffling demise of Colonel Shu. Now, they did a 48 hours of this, so you may have seen it. I don't recall seeing it, but, but this is crazy. And you're going to want to grab a pen and paper for this official. This starts in 2003 when Colonel Shu was found dead. At the scene, the first responders said they'd never forget it. Dude was sitting in the driver's seat of his crashed car, hands and feet bound, and he had traumatic head injuries. His shirt was ripped open, exposing his chest. He had no nipples. Pause here to grab your chest, hold, and breathe, and nipple check complete. The colonel was a doctor of psychiatry. He met his second wife, Tracy, in 1988 at Elgin Air Force Base in Florida where they were both stationed. In 93, he was reassigned to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, where the couple purchased a home. Like you hear in a lot of stories or most stories, people were said to have loved him, very popular. Prior to his death, he had decided to retire, and the couple had found their dream home in Alabama, where they already put down a deposit. April 16th. It was this subject they were discussing that morning before Colonel Shu left for his work, in his army fatigues or BDU's battle dress uniform, 5.30 a.m. that morning. Two witnesses saw his car abruptly drive into a median, causing the vehicle to become airborne. Then he managed to gain control, continued down the highway, until he drove into a row of trees. No attempt was made to resuscitate him at the scene because he was clearly dead. The first responder said his t-shirt was torn open, from the chest to the navel, showing a vertical gash in the chest and his nippleectomy. My words, not theirs. He appeared to have duct tape on his wrists and boots. The autopsy reveals that despite the state of the shirt, it was still tucked in, but it had a, quote, neat cut and partial tear in the center of the t-shirt beginning approximately two inches from above where it was tucked into the pants. Hmm. The shirt had blood on it from that area down, and the buttons were partially torn off his capo shirt. So this is why I said, hope you're writing this down. This is crazy. In his underwear was found white fiber consistent with that of a diaper, along with a tab with a cartoon figure consistent with a tab from a diaper, and apparently not an adult one, unless they do that now. I don't know. The duct tape on his right wrist had one and a half loops with a loose end with blood on it. Left wrist had three loops of tape with blood being found on the inner side. So, with all this said, there was no blood on the skin. His contact lenses were lying outside of his eyes and underneath each eye, with his left lens bloody and folded. Like we said, he had massive head trauma, he had a fractured jaw, and multiple head fractures. His chest hair had been shaved off in some areas, including most of the upper portion of the right side with hair stubble present. So obviously it wasn't like from that day. So did Colonel Shu shave the hair off his chest before this? And why in that one pattern? 
dried blood mixed with adhered pieces of glass are on the back of his left hand and blood under his nails. So, torture? His right ear was partially torn down with the left pin of his ear irregularly torn. <laughs> back to the nipples. The right nipple was cut off almost in a circular incision not surrounded by abrasion or contusion. A superficial incision and five scratch abrasions in the area of the excised nipples like practice cuts. Amputations on the fifth distal portion of the fifth digit of his left hand as well as part of the little finger on his right hand with lidocaine found in the blood. So why would a torturer give lidocaine? And with all the other stuff that he did to himself, if he did it, why would he give himself some lidocaine? Anyway, the car crash seen as deliberate due to there was no braking detected in the witness statements. As they do when they start investigating, they sometimes find, or a lot of times, a history of psychiatric issues. So, of course, this is focused on because it can play a large role. They also found a charged cell phone in his car, so he totally could have called for help. Colonel Shu was found to have expired of a mass craniocerebral injuries, which is now the word of the day. Craniocerebral. The pathologist goes on to determine, after seeing all this, you guessed it, he killed himself. Cut off his own nips and fingers, bound his own wrists and ankles, and... I say it's a WTF moment. Now, the vehicle in the crime scene was not preserved as it was the accident injuries occurred there. Usually, it's considered a crime scene. But as we'll see, someone related to the investigation said that they didn't feel that it was preserved because they figured they had already made up their mind what had happened. His wife, Tracy, never even retrieved the vehicle because she said it's a crime scene and it needs to be safeguarded. 2021 now y'all 2003 I can't help but wonder what are those like storage fees that she's being charged for having that car held there it's got to be worth more than the car at this point the grand jury was called of 12 regular citizens to review the findings and they found no evidence of a crime and thus it was a suicide they ruled they felt Colonel Shu was depressed had severe anxiety and took his own life Tracy Shue did not agree, so she went on and hired Cyril Wecht, which is a fun name to say. She hires this famous forensic pathologist. He says he has never seen a case as bizarre and as atypical as this one, which most of us can tend to agree. Dr. Wecht could not find a needle mark, no cutting instrument that have caused that could have caused those mutilations, and the amount of lidocaine wasn't at a level for him to actually be able to numb the pain. He further concluded there wasn't enough evidence to show that Shu cut his own chest and that torture instead answered this question. There were no fingerprints on the duct tape. No gloves were found to explain this outcome. What up with that? How could he have done it by himself? Wex feels it's possible that Shu was unable to control his vehicle due to his injuries. Mm-hmm. Duh and why he initially hit the medium. He says the fact that there were none of his own fingerprints on the tape suggested another person's involvement. The lack of any weapon that could have caused trauma noted on the autopsy, the missing portion of his body, 
and the absence of his wallet all strongly and logically suggested that the trauma occurred somewhere outside his vehicle and that another person caused this. And he said, I would place my bet that this was a homicide. It's really crazy, right? We got more. The letters. Mrs. Shu claims her husband had for some time, obviously not given us a time frame there, been receiving anonymous letters telling him he might be in danger from his ex-wife. Apparently, the letter writer says they overheard a conversation between Nancy Shu, which is the first Mrs. Colonel, and her husband, Donnell Timpson, planning to murder him for the oldest reason in the book. Well, besides sex. Insurance money! Nancy's current hubs, Donnie Boy, he was an active duty Air Force pilot. Nancy, she still had a policy on her ex, despite his asking her multiple times to cancel it. Tracy Shue, the recent Mrs. Colonel, says after the letter was received, she wrote to the first Mrs. and said, Hey, Nancy, what's up? Nancy said that she had nothing to do with it. It's a sick joke, most likely. So Colonel Shue had, had written to Nancy previously and said to her, asking her to cancel the policy, he quote, his quoted as saying, I feel helpless to prevent my eventual murder if you hire good assassins. Her response was, she says, look, I didn't write the letter and me and Donnie boy were in Florida and we can prove it. I was out nowhere near this, didn't do it. The other letters contain threats or that's what Colonel Shu told his wifey. It doesn't say that these letters were actually reviewed by investigators and it points to, obviously, she may not have seen all of them. That's another part of the mystery. 2005, there was a psychological forensic autopsy done by the Lakeland Detachment of the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. The opinions of these two board-certified forensic psychiatrists, interviews, information sources, and our experience, that's what went into them coming up with what they found. They interviewed his boss, a former supervisor, his father, wife, and friends. So going back to the day that he disappeared and died, Shu left for work one hour earlier than normal and for an unknown reason with no evidence of where he was until 8 a.m. when he was seen at work by someone. So from 5.30 till 8, missing time. The fingertip and nip tissue were never found and there were no calls made from his cell phone prior to the crash. Blood was found on the inside of his cell. However, it was one of those older clamshell type that folds. It's just on the inside, not on the outside. Could have been wiped down, uh, maybe. Money was found in his pocket with the actual wallet missing. Inside the car was found a straight razor and two small pocket knives and a latex glove. Shoe's blood was not on um, was on one of the knives, the glove, and the steering wheel, but his fingerprints, like we said, were not found. Only one knife was in the crime scene photo, which was a Swiss Army knife, not sharp enough to have made those incisions. In the glove box, unopened small gauge needles. What? The Bexar County Medical Examiner's Toxicologist, a Dr. Koonsman, told the investigating forensic psychiatrist that the test for colonzepam, or, here's another one, venlafaskin, <laughs> the V drug, for which she was prescribed, were negative. 
Yet the Air Force reported clozapam in the small sample the FBI lab had ran. So which is it? And going to the psychological problems, the history that they said he had, she was a pilot from 70 to 74 with his career cut short due to an incident January 22nd of 73 in Okinawa where he showed up to the troop medical clinic saying he was jumped in his room. From here, he started having episodes of losing control of both his consciousness and his bladder once on a flight, which the forensic duo comments that this could explain why he was wearing a diaper when he was found. He's just had a history of incontinence since then, is what they found or think. There was no seizure disorder or psychiatric diagnosis in his folder or uh, made, but the anxiety was the prevalent theory causing this escalation. So they're saying what he was thinking, it got to him, it freaked him out real bad, and it caused all these things to happen. An unknown time later, he was diagnosed with having a Meniere's disease, which causes severe vertigo and nausea, and one can just fall to the floor because it comes on so fast. The fear of this occurring in front of others and the possible injuries, obviously, and embarrassment would have increased this anxiety because you're not in control and not all of us can handle this. Hugh has also attended medical school from April of 98 to 2000 and initially didn't turn in his thesis to graduate. That's not so odd. A lot of people do that. However, the reason he gave his guidance counselor at first was that the school had a history of pervasive cheating. Then he reported his laptop was stolen on several occasions. And then when he found it, it was returned, all data gone. Then the threats on his life began. As he told the counselor, who promptly advised him to call the popo, but she would leslie basically waved it off, minimized it, said this would do no good. Now we go to December 6th of 2000. He's at the library. Guess what happens to his laptop? It's stolen again. I'm thinking, dude must have amazing porn downloaded, okay? This time it was reported to the school security, and the outcome of this report says his laptop was returned. That's all we know. She said that when he did find it on the hood of his car, there was a note along with it stating that if he reported the incident, others would die. Shu did end up completing his thesis and graduating, however. When he took the Aerospace Medicine Board exam, his medical boards, in October of 2000, he got a zero on a multiple choice test, and nobody could explain that. One more thing to put in the jar of weirdness. So he apparently told Dr. Dion, who I'm guessing is the guidance counselor, because sometimes in this book they'll mention people heavily and then they won't until like they want to. So I guess we'll say it's the guidance counselor. Told him about a letter he received about the life insurance, which caused his anxiety depression to progress over time for the rest of the year. December of 99, he was prescribed Prozac, 20 milligram. That's what I take. And Clonzepam. I don't know why I can't say that. Maybe I need to take it and I'll say it. After a panic attack on the base. And in 2002, the V-drug, Venlafaxine, was added, which is also an antidepressant. So he was on anxiety, depression medications. And, you know, 20 milligrams of Prozac really isn't a lot. I'm not sure with the V-drug. I'm not familiar with that. 
Shu became paranoid and began doing things like varying his routine to and from work using a P.O. box instead of his home mailbox because he thought it might be booby-trapped, devolving into a dissociative episode in which he imagines his car went out of control on his way to work and great violence was done to him. Foreshadowing. Based on the information given by his co-workers, he functioned normally and no one was aware of his severe anxiety, so he was hiding it well. Due to there being no venlaxothene in his blood, the concern was he was becoming paranoid, but hearing no one else notice it, they rejected the idea. I guess it would be important if other people noticed this. The psychiatrist ended up dismissing her dismissal <laughs> and due to the fact that he did not know that the police were never contacted about the threats. And there was a threatening note along with the returned laptop. So because the guidance counselor wasn't aware of the full story, they were like, eh, it doesn't matter what she says. She doesn't know everything and we know everything. So they basically cast that aside. Conclusion. Shu had taken sufficient bizarre actions in the years prior to his death that provide circumstantial support of unusual, if not paranoid, behavior, and that his death is suicide. While he did have tape around his wrists and ankles, the tape did not look as if he had been strained against. The loops around his wrists and ankles were loose without the pattern of stretching that would be expected if they were used to restrain him, and the pattern in which the tape was placed around his body would be an inefficient way of binding him. They also didn't think someone injected him with a lidocaine as part of a drug combo to incapacitate him. Then they walked it back by adding they're not familiar with its use in that capacity and no other sedating drugs were in the system. They felt his stopping of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds would have naturally ramped up, pushing him into a tenuous mental state. They also mentioned that Shu apparently had passed a patrol car and didn't stop to ask for help prior to all this going underway. So get this, they say, these psychiatrists, that he passed far better objects against which to crash and instead settled on the trees, showing that he was ambivalent about ending his life. And that's why he didn't crash into other objects of robbery. I mentioned speculation that the notes were possible motives for getting the life insurance policy canceled, leading one to think he may have invented a plan to stage an abduction torture so the police would finally push the ex to get it dropped to cancel the policy. That's what they kind of came up with, and that's why he did it. Anxiety over the policy, over life, and it just... And his feeling out of control, not taking his meds, it all pushed him into this thinking, or lack thereof. Now, the theories are not a whole lot, actually, from the book, that is. I'm sure you have some love to hear it. His wife, Tracy, believes he was abducted and tortured, and unsure if this is related to a 1978 claim by him that a man had shot at him while he was driving home. Every time you think you heard it all... Yeah, Dr. Mao, and I'm not sure who this is, one of the medical examiners or somebody, again, book's not consistent with names, feels if one had been tortured like that, you wouldn't drive past three city exits with access to hospitals and ignore a working cell phone. 
Dr. Mao also feels like Chu tied himself up. He goes on to say there were no defensive wounds found and thinks that Tracy Chu is tainted by her love, or she loves taint. Tracy Chu says that the first wife, Nancy, this is a good one, was a board-certified sex therapist who studied sadomasochism, meow, and her belief is that his injuries are consistent with this, S&M, and her sexual in nature. She thinks that because she studied in this, maybe she's into it, I don't know, that she's to blame. And it all goes back, of course, that policy that didn't get canceled. So I'd leave Florida for some good S&M, but, you know, but that's just me. Lieutenant Anderson was apparently one of the investigators, and he believes he was jumped, Colonel Shu, on his way to work, taken somewhere else, abused, and was able to escape, as shown by the torn duct tape. I mean, I don't know how close he was to home. Still, where was he going? Was he close to home? Was he driving somewhere else? They say he drove past Exus and hospitals. So here are my questions. And they are aplenty. I'm sure you have the same reaction. Why didn't he drive to the police station, like I just said? Or use a cell phone? Why couldn't he use his brakes? Was he in shock? But he already had uh, gotten his car under control, right? So this certainly shows something. I'm not sure what. Was he in pain, trying to fight passing out? So he's trying to get in control? I don't know. Could he have been threatened or his family threatened if he went to the police and that's why he didn't? Did he think that maybe no one could be trusted and that's why with what he was going through or was involved in, which there was nothing to point to he was involved in anything, why would someone wanting to torment him give him lidocaine? Could he have given it to himself despite there being no injection marks that Dr. Wecht found? Had he actually bound his own wrists and feet while wearing gloves? then somehow got rid of them after wiping his own fingerprints off? Where'd someone else tie them up? If that's true, when, where, and why? Torture? The mere fact that Tracy hired Dr. Wecht, a reason for him to skew his thinking to her side? I, I don't want to say that these very highly regarded forensic pathologists are up for hire, but they are up for hire. And do you hear that they often find something opposite of what the family wants them to find? I'm just putting that out there. I'm not saying nothing about no weft. I don't got no money for him to take. Don't sue me. Could someone have been familiar with the colonel's mental struggle and scheme to make it his murder look like a strange suicide so no one would look at them? Could his ex-wife and hubs have hired someone to kill him or at least torture him? And if so, why? Where did he go on the morning of his death? And I could never find out if they found out. Could he have been abducted before work or meet someone and it got out of hand? And if so, obviously, what would that end? Or was he the first one at work that day? And that's why no one saw him prior to this. So, like, did he leave, get there at, like, 5.45 or whatever? And it was so early, nobody got there till 8, and no one. that's why no one saw him? So why would there be needles in his car? Or did someone put them there? And they never did say about what they thought they were for. Why was there blood on the unused cell phone? Was he or was he not taking his meds? Would the Air Force have reason to cover up the real circumstances around his death? And next question, if so, what were they? Why did he never go to the police about the letters? Had he written them? 
Were they even real? How could he have ex escaped from someone with no signs of a struggle? But why were his bindings so loose and unrestrained? Was Shu framing his ex? <laughs> would it be worth both of his nips? Why would he pull on his ears so hard that they were torn and hanging? Who cut that L-shaped hole in the back of his pocket? What the fuck actually happened? So here we go on to the last one. The last tale is the boy in the red dress. I was looking online for updates on this and ran across a picture. Supposedly it's the picture of him hanging. I don't know. It was in Chinese. So I'm hoping it wasn't. But I texted Queen V and was pretty upset. Don't look at crime scene photos. It's not the thing. I didn't even Google image it or anything. It just was there. So here we go. It's November 2009. This mother in China is having a nightmare. And in the nightmare, this tall, thin man wearing a suit and a hat, and the hat's covering his face, and he's walking the town where they have an abandoned house. She sees him in her dream, approach her former abode, stopping at the rear door and smiling. And this smile is like totally sinister. She notices that he's carrying a package of some kind. Dang Wei is so disturbed by her dream, she tells her husband about it the next day and begs him go to the old go to the old house and check it out. Something's going on. He of course says, whatever, it's just a dream, and goes about his day. Their 13-year-old son, Jun Quan, is away at boarding school. Now I've seen his name in this book three different ways. I'm gonna be consistent, and I've seen it online different as well. But I'm gonna go Jun Kuang. He is known, the son, to be reading, always be seen with his favorite book, Strange Tales from a Lonely Studio, which is a famous Chinese book of ghost stories written way back in 1740. Mrs. Deng Hui again asks her husband to go and check out the empty house the next day, and he finally gives in, says, okay, I'm gonna go check this out. Heads off to the old family home in the village of Shanxing, and this village is in the Benan district. So the dad goes to the village to check out the house and runs into a neighbor, and she says that she saw a tall man wearing a suit and a hat around the house cover carrying a bag. And she saw him go around the back. Now this is totally true. This is real. So it's not just a story story. This is a real story. She says she saw him go around the back. Dude, of course, gets freaked and heads over to check things out. He gets there and tries to open the front door with his key, but it won't budge. So he goes to the side door and the same thing happens. So he finally goes to the rear door, last door obviously to try, and it's been boarded up with planks of wood across across it and a steel bar, which he placed there to try to prevent anyone from breaking in. When he gets there, they're gone. The steel and wood planks are on the ground with the door open a few inches. The dad finds the lights on and the place is in shambles and the horrifying sight of the body of his son hanging by a rope from a wooden roof beam. He was hanging by his hands, which had been bound tightly together. His feet had also been bound. His body was also bound tightly by ropes with a large, heavy scale hung between his feet. On the scale was the number one. Ji Jun was wearing a red dress, and his body was cold. The police arrived, found no footprints, no signs of struggle, no items stolen. They actually found $5 on the floor. 
His textbooks, cell, CDs, and watch were there, along with two packs of instant noodles, with one being eaten. His father said Xi Jung's cell phone had broken a few days ago, and he'd been unable to contact him. On the day of the discovery of his son's body, the father had gone to send money to his son, not knowing that his school had closed due to a flu outbreak. The school, they assumed that Xi Jung went home, like everybody else, four days ago. His dad realized that if it hadn't been for the wife's dream, his son would be undiscovered and rotting there in the house alone. This makes me so heartbroken that we're going to pause and I'm going to look at baby animals. Just give me a second here. On December the 3rd of 09, the police's report released ruling the death as an accident. Don't they always? The parents applied for a re reconsideration and on December 11th, it came back with a determination there was no clue of murder or suicide, and they stood by the original outcome. Now the autopsy. The marks were from the ropes were on the thighs, hands, and bare feet and are extremely deep. There were 12 intricate knots tied on his hands and feet. His parents said he had no history of learning how to tie knots. On the boy's forehead was a tiny pinhole. Other than that, no open wounds, apart from the savage impression on his skin from the tight ropes. Xi Zhang's feet were only a few centimeters off the ground with a bench overturned beside him. On the wooden back door, the word kill was written with the word king. King kill, kill king. There was also a cross drawn, but his father wasn't sure if it had been there before. The medical examiner said the death was within the last 48 hours. When Xi Jing's dress was removed, he was in a women's bathing suit stuffed with black cloth to make him look like he had breasts. The police said the boy must have been playing a game. But of course, his father responded, what kind of game would make my son put on a swimsuit and skirt, tie himself up by his hands and feet, and hang himself from the roof? Indeed, good sir, indeed. The boy's father said the red dress looked like one his niece had owned, although it didn't seem to be hers and no one ever found out who it actually belonged to. Parents could not understand why Xi Zhang was wearing a dress, obviously not having seen this previously from him. And of course it was a thought from the investigation and whispered by locals he was experimenting with his sexuality. And to that I say, hey babe, you do to you, you know, but not to this extent. His teachers said Xi Zhang was quiet, his grades were lower in the class, but he was an honest and a normal kid. Neighbors agreed that he was shy, but was never known to been seen wearing women's clothing or discussing this desire or like with anybody else. Authorities say he was playing some kind of quote-unquote superstitious game and closed the case. Theories. So the media says that Zhejiang's mom's first husband and his half-brother killed him as revenge for an unknown dispute. They supposedly quoted his father as believing this as well, and the mom believed that her ex abducted Shishun and hid him. The ex and son were questioned, but ruled out. This next theory is really good in that it's freaky. Chinese occultists say the death had been a rare, once-in-a-century ritual. The boy had died aged 13 years and 13 days. The paraphernalia of the scale, the dress, the wood, these were the five elements. The wood being represented wood. Duh. The bathing suit represented the water. The red dress, fire. And this was ancient Taoist sorcery, they said. An individual or sect 
had killed him in order to raise him as a ghost. The pinhole in his forehead signified the separation of the soul from the body, and the weight hanging from his feet signified keeping his soul on earth, while the red dress representing fire bound his soul to the killer. They went on to say this is the death method that will break up the soul and it will never pass. The soul is forever doomed to the earth realm. This is fucked up. Like, why would you do this to anybody, especially a kid? The killer once seems to have wanted to steal his soul. The split needle or the pinhole, the lock of the soul, are exclusive spells of Moshan. Killer will be familiar with the date of the birth of the child. It will use the red clothes to lock the soul. The person is likely to be an elder or an expert in ritualistic magic, and the purpose was to extend their own life. The person to be dealt with must be powerful and unusual and very sophisticated. Those things are kind of stuff they say about me. The sophistication. Yeah. The planner of this case is likely a high-powered person. It seems that the person of the murder is not to hurt the soul, but to take it to raise as a ghost. That whole raising as a ghost thing, I know they've kind of explained it, still don't get it. And wow, freaky, spooky. The soul needle is inserted from the top of the head. The pen is to lock the soul first, then vent the soul, and finally take it. The police must know this is a bad thing. If the police want to break this case, it is impossible without the help from metaphysics. But the thing is, I am afraid that people who are good at spells are afraid to intervene. There are very few people who could do this. Nothing solid as far as theories, um, if you want to consider this solid, very intriguing. Now the questions, of course, that we get to aren't as many as I had with the Colonel Shoe case, but still, how could he bind himself up and hang the scale? I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Re Rebecca Zahau case, Billy Jensen, Paul Holes, and I believe an old an ex-prosecutor, they did a story about it. Don't think it was on Netflix, or maybe I just paid for it on Amazon because I wanted to watch it all at once. Rebecca Zahau was found bound, naked, hanging outside. And so Billy went and talked to some, I think some S&M people, said, could you bind yourself up like this? Could you tie yourself? And there is a way to do it. They showed him how to do it. But look at the other evidence in the case, how she was hanging, the fact she was naked. There's just a lot that points to the fact that couldn't do that. It had to have been someone else. If you haven't heard of that, totally look into it. It's along these lines. And it's even sadder, more involved, because she was watching her six-year-old stepson, and he had died, like, within a week, within a few days before it, that this happened. So, anyway, check that out, but this is what it reminds me of with the whole bindings and everything and hanging. But he didn't hang himself with from his neck. He, he was hung by his hands. And had something been pinned to his forehead, like a note or a playing card? Yet, if this, too, has had been done by someone else, why were there no signs of a struggle, no serious injuries or wounds? So had he been drugged or had harm been threatened to his family, to him, or if he didn't comply with what they were asking him to do? They didn't really get into the toxicology report or anything, and I couldn't find anything other than the crime scene photo, of course, and I stopped looking after that. So I'm not sure about what other stuff they may have found in his body, whatever evidence. Had he been acting out a scene from his favorite book? I want to know what kind of shit they're writing in a children's book of the 1740s with that stuff. But hey, you know, the grim fairy tales and all. Who was this mysterious man? 
Who was the dude that's hanging out? No one could see his face. Sinister smile. It's just creepy. Was this a, a case of secret sadomasochism fetish? And it died of asphyxia? But again, he would be hanging from his neck and not his hands, if that's the case. Or he's just new at it. What does the number one on the scale mean? The way the ropes were tied looked very professional. How could the boy have hanged himself from the beam if his hands were intricately bound together with many knots? And as I've stated pretty much after the end of each of these, what the fuck happened? I can't even imagine. Well, my lab rats, I must exit. Thank you for listening to me once again. And I look forward to our next endeavor in evil. Remember, everyone has their truth. Mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats.